Psalm 95. Beginning with verse 1, it says this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are the people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my way. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. For those of you who have been attending here for about the past six weeks or so, I have noticed a trend and a tendency. We are a Pentecostal church, and from time to time, there will be a message in tongues and an interpretation. More times than that, there are prophetic words that are given within our services. And I discovered that there was a theme that began to manifest itself in this, and it was, it was centered around worship being a key in our lives that would either that as we entered in and gave ourselves to it would break chains within our life or open doors within our life, but God wanted to do something and that the key to it was being able to enter into worship with all of our heart, mind, soul, and being. Now, this went on for several weeks and the theme didn't change. And so, as a pastor, I remember pastoring those gifts and, and it came to me, one of two things is happening. Either those that have the gift of the spirit that are using it in a corporate setting are in a rut and they're lacking the creativity of the spirit to express what the spirit is prompting them or we have been less than obedient in what God was trying to call us to and that the repeated theme came as a result of he wants us to dig into worship and understand exactly what it means to us. I choose to believe the second. And so I'm interrupting our worship this morning because I want to teach you what true worship is, and then we're going to cut loose, and we are going to worship the Lord to wrap up our service today. Because of this reoccurring theme, I said, Father, what would you want us to know, and how, how do you want us to address this? And, and here's what came to me. We are living in a place where so many of us are living with uncertainty in, in one or more areas of our life. Do it, does that fit any of you? There's just some uncertainty going on, and we don't know for sure what to do or, or how to address that. And I believe that in that uncertainty, the Lord has been knocking on some doors as He has been pursuing us, that He wanted us to, to begin to open those doors, and we've been reluctant to give into that. And because of this uncertainty, we have fallen into the trap of our prayers, have all become petitionary, which means the only thing I'm saying to the Lord is when I'm in trouble, I want Him to fix it. And so, Lord, here I am. Here's my issue. Here's my uncertainty. Would you just fix this for me? Here's what I believe that this Scripture is going to unlock for us. The greatest peace that we seek, the greatest thing that we long for in our soul does not come when we ask for things in prayer. They are unlocked when we worship God, when we unlock our hearts and say, we just want to elevate you to the place that you belong within our life 
because then it recalibrates us and helps us in all of these things. And so this particular psalm, I believe, is a classic in the Bible on worship, and it tells us almost everything that we need to know. It answers the question, what is worship? Why should we worship, and and how can we worship? And so if you're taking notes, just jot down the first point. What is worship? Worship is this. It is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something. It is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages you as a whole person. Your whole being is engaged. So let me explain what I mean scripturally from this. Worship, according to this text, is is something that engages every part of you. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. In verse 1, we are discovered here that there's, there's words that describe us emotionally. So we're called to worship Him with our emotions. When it says that you are to sing, that you are to shout aloud, that you are to come with thanksgiving, that you are to extol. Now, the word extol means to praise enthusiastically. And that we are to come in the aspect of using music to praise Him. So there's an an emotional aspect that the Scripture says that we must tap into. Now, for some of you, that's really easy. For some of you, you're going, there's no way I'm going to let my emotional beast out. In fact, this is about as emotional as I can get in praising. There's an aspect of you that God wants to unlock and that there's safety in the house of the Lord to be emotional with the way that we worship Him. Now, we as Pentecostals should be trained in that okay. And sometimes we get so emotional, we forget the other two pieces that are here that the Lord brings balance to. Because secondly, in verse 6, we are called to worship Him with our will. Now, the language here is that of submission. You come. You kneel. You bow down. You take a posture of submission before the Lord, whether it's uh, spiritually or physically, but but we recognize that in the worship of this aspect, Lord, we humble ourselves before you because we are worshiping you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then in verse 8, we come to this third part of our being that's addressed here, and that is the area of reason or thinking when he says this. The language here is, hear his voice, listen to his voice and accept what he says. So now we are engaging our minds in worship because each of us, when, when we are singing, when we are worshiping, when we are praising, the Spirit is saying something to you. And I'm so glad that in a setting like this, what the Spirit says to you in worship may be different than what the Spirit is saying to me in worship. My needs are different than yours. But when we open up our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say, we engage our mind in that aspect. So we hear His voice, listen, and accept. So in other words, worship is something that engages you at your full level of being, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And it's important to understand, and this is particularly true of churches that sing regularly. If we go through a ritual of singing or we make singing a ritual, we can, we can classify it as something less than what God wants to do in it. There's an expression in singing. There's an expression of thanks or, or expression of love. And, and if you don't experience the ravishing beauty of the presence of the Lord when you are worshiping, then it's not worship. If you're not experiencing the wonderful presence of God, then it's not worship. And let me flip that thought and present it to you this way. 
You can also go to a church or to a concert and hear music and have a a tremendous emotional response. There have been times when I have sat in in services and tears are streaming down my face from, from what I am feeling, the emotional response that I have to that song. But listen, if, if you leave that place and you don't fundamentally change the way you live, if it doesn't change your character, if it doesn't change your life patterns, it wasn't worship. And then we look at what the text says here, and it's, it's, it speaks of bowing and kneeling. In other words, you could submit yourself to God, but if you don't, after, after having done that, have the joy of the Lord in your heart. Or on the other hand, you can, you can shout and sing without bowing and kneeling, without submitting yourself. So without submission in your life, it really isn't worship, is what the Scripture is telling us. So you may be having an emotional experience, but it's not worship because worship entails your entire being and requires a response within your life. So what does it engage in in our entire being? It is an act of assigning ultimate value to God. That is what my worship is. And if you take a look at the psalm, you will see that the psalmist's engagement is stemming from something that the psalmist is doing. Tells us in verses one and two. Sing and shout and come before him with thanksgiving, with music and song. And then in verse three, it gives us the reason. It says, for, whenever you see that word for, you know that the reason is coming after it. The reason that we engage in activity is because of this. Because our God is great. I worship because my God is great. My God is king. My God is in control of all of creation, and so he is in control of everything that has to do with your life. Say, well, sometimes I feel out of control. Then you need to worship. You need to put it back into his hands. So all of the emotion and all of the being and all of the thinking and all the submission comes because we enter into a relationship with him when we worship and surrender ourselves to him because He made us to be his people. And so this life transformation that's coming from worship is something that the psalmist is doing because he is taking inventory of all of the excellencies of God in his life. How many of you remember an old song? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Any of you old enough to remember that song? A few of you. Those of, it's a great song. What it describes to us is that as we enter into worship, there needs to be in our heart and mind an inventory. Lord, I'm worshiping you, and, and, and we should not have any problem coming up with multiple reasons why he's worthy. Even when things are not well, maybe you're, maybe you're going through a sickness or a disease or things are struggling in your family or your job, even when things like that, it still is important for us to inventory all of the excellencies of God to put our heart and mind back on him. I heard Tim Keller illustrate the the chapter this way. He said, imagine a woman inherited a brooch from her mother who got that brooch from her mother. And it's been around the family for years and nobody really knows where it came from. Nobody really knows what it's worth and most of the time nobody even knows where it's at. It's just one of those things that kind of gets passed around. And one day as the woman is cleaning her home, she stumbles across the box, opens it up, and and here is that brooch. And before she just gets rid of it or gives it away to somebody, she thinks, 
I should probably get this appraised. And so she goes to a jeweler. And the jeweler is there and breaks out, you know, his black velvet little mat and puts the thing, and then he takes his little thing. I don't know what the jeweler thingy is that he sticks in his eye. It's a thingy, you know. It's just a glass thingy. And the jeweler puts the thingy in his eye, and he touches to look at this brooch, and, and as he sees it, he notices the way that the stone has been cut. And, and he notices that the facets, you know, refract the color of light, and he, he notices the color and, and the texture and the design, and, and he begins to put all of these little pieces together as he's looking at it, and suddenly, the little thingy falls out of his eye as he opens his eyebrow, and he begins to recognize that his, the lady that's looking at him recognizes his breathing is increasing, his, his heart rate is increasing. He begins to sweat, and, he, and his palm begins to shake as he's, as he's holding this. And, and he begins to try to describe to her that I have recognized that the craft of this thing no longer exists on the face of the earth. There's only been one man in history that could cut a stone like this. And, and he said, the reason I'm experiencing all of this is because you have a rare piece that has been lost to history. It's an ancient piece. It's, it's unbelievably valuable. I have no way of putting a value on it. In fact, it is more valuable than anything I've got in my store right now. And if I was to take the value of every piece of jewelry and every diamond I've had in my store for the last 30 years, this brooch is more valuable than all of them put together. And of course, when the woman hears this, she's thunderstruck. She can't believe it because... She has been living in such a way that she never understood and valued the true value of what she had. In fact, she hadn't been living in accordance with even protecting it the way that she should. She wasn't living in a way that she ought to be living in possession of something that is so valuable. And now her whole life changes when she recognizes the value of what belongs to her. This is an illustration of what worship is. When we assign ultimate value to God and we live in such a way that we understand the value of what we have. The psalmist is calling us to do exactly what the, the jeweler does. He starts rationally. He starts with thinking. He's looking into what he has and what he's done. He inventories the goodness until he draws the conclusion that this has tremendous value and tremendous beauty. And that is who God is to us. In fact, the word that we get worship from is really from an old English word that means worship. Worship is to see God and to give Him glory as to what He is worth, to grasp His worth in such a way that you live in accordance to what you have in relationship with Him. And then you live to protect the value of that relationship. Now, most people in this country, according to the polls, believe in God. But they, they have a belief system in God, and the way that they treat God is much like this woman treated this brooch. She's completely unaffected, completely unaware of the value of it. And the difference, I believe, in so many that you find yourself just limping along in your spiritual life. You're just, just trying to get through. And the life of those who are completely transformed is understanding what it means to live a life of worship. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what He's worth, living in accordance with it, and in such a way that you allow Him to transform your whole life.
Charles Crabtree was the assistant superintendent of the Assemblies of God and served as the president of a college that I'd served on the board on. And I remember him saying, if our worship doesn't end in obedience, then our worship is a dead-end street. Secondly, the text tells us this. Why should we worship? Why should we worship? Why should we worship God and why should we work at it? The answer is that you're already worshiping something. You are already worshiping something. You are already ascribing ultimate value to something in your life. Your, your whole life is already controlled and oriented towards something which with you have already ascribed ultimate value. You see, the world is divided into two people. There are those that are worshiping something or things or people that will distort their lives and those that worship the one who is worthy to be worshiped. And the answer is found in verse 3. It said, for the Lord is the great God, the great King. And then there's this word, these, these little three words here, above all gods, lowercase plural. Now, we look at that, and it's easy for us in, in the world in which we live to say, you know, that's, that was the primitive way of looking at Scripture, the primitive way of looking at life. You know, when they worship the God of the mountain, the God of the sun, the God of the valley, you know, they had all these different gods. And, and that what the psalmist is saying there is that, yeah, God is great, but we're not like that anymore, you know. And, and so it doesn't really apply to us. Wrong. You see, verse 3 tells us that the very essence of worship is that you will not be able to worship unless you recognize that your heart is already ascribing ultimate value to something. And that the process of the true worshiper of God, and this has to happen regularly within our life, is to recognize what we already worship and then transfer the ultimate value of that thing to God. I am going to allow you, Lord, to take the most priority in my heart. You become everything to me, and whatever is on the sideline, the periphery, Lord, I will put it in a lower place than that. And so, in other words, true worship is not creating something that you don't already have, but it's transferring that ultimate value of those things to God while you are in worship, and we call that making Him Lord. Too many people are satisfied with having Him be Savior. I want the hell insurance. I want the tribulation insurance. I just, listen, I've said the prayer, but don't make me submit my life to you. And the psalmist begins to describe to us something that takes us from the beginning steps of relationships and elevating him to Lord of all within our life. And so when we do that, we're transferring that to him, and it changes your life. Now, I recognize that in America today and, and certainly in New York, there would be a lot of people saying, what are you talking about? I'm not a religious person. I don't really engage in worship, so, so that's not really true in my life. I, I, I don't have anything that I ascribe that level of value to. Some of you, and, and as I state this illustration, let me tell you, I'm not promoting the movie or the books or anything, but it's just a, there's a great story in this. In Harry Potter's first book, and it, it may have come out in the movie. I didn't see the movie. Quit laughing. <laughs> there was an object that was called the Mirror of Erised. And, and it's a children's book, so 
It's not very subtle. Erised is simply the word desire backwards. And Harry Potter comes upon this mirror. And he looks at the mirror, and to his amazement, when he looks at this mirror, he sees his parents. Now, that's important to him because he'd never known his parents. They had died when he was a baby, and so he's looking at this, and he sees them, and he's engaged with them, and they're talking with him, and they're showering him with approval and putting their hand on his shoulder, and he can't believe it, what he's looking at in this mirror. So he, in great excitement, runs off to go get his friend Ron Weasley, and he drags Ron back to this mirror because he wants Ron to see his parents. And so Ron gets in front of this mirror, and what Ron sees in the mirror is not Harry's parents, but he sees himself as a sports champion. And, and he sees himself as the hero of the teams, and, and he's looking at it, and they can't figure it out, what's going on here, that they're seeing different things, until Harry Potter's mentor comes and explains to them that the mirror will always show you what your deepest and most desperate desire is of your heart. So everybody will see something different. And because every single person has put their hope in something that they say, if I just had this, I would be good. If I just had this relationship or if I just had that job or just had this possession, then I would be happy. It's the missing piece of my life. And every one of us would see something different in the mirror. And the question is, what is that thing for you? What is it? that when you worship, God is in competition with. Because everybody is living for something, and, and, and whatever that something is completely orients your whole life. It can completely control you, and whatever controls you is functionally your Lord. When you work so hard to get a position or you work so hard to hold something or you work so hard to make yourself lovable and you work so hard to do all of these things, it gets really easy to allow that to become something that you assign ultimate value to in your life. And everybody lives for something, but whatever it is that you are dependent upon or so desperately want, you know it because you're afraid of losing it. You get freaked out when anything goes wrong with it, and be honest, your relationship to that, your relationship to that without even knowing it is that of worship. You have ascribed ultimate value, and your whole life is oriented around this thing. Now you begin to realize why the worship of God is absolutely transforming. And you haven't worshiped God unless it is changing your life. Why? Because if you get freaked out every time you have a breakup, then you're not ascribing ultimate value to God. If you get freaked out when something goes wrong with your money or the stock market's running up and down, then you haven't ascribed ultimate value to God. If you get freaked out over failure then you haven't ascribed ultimate value to God. The Bible says to us then that our ultimate problem is that we've not ascribed to Him the value that He deserves because He said, I want your worship. Only when we see God's love as more satisfying and valuable and beautiful than any other kind of love will you never again be freaked out over relationships or money or failure or over the acceptance of others. If you find yourself constantly anxious, if you're nervous, if you're discouraged, if you're depressed over what other people think of you, 
Nothing less than reassigning ultimate value of your life from where it is to God will bring healing to you. It will bring change to you. It will bring everlasting peace to you. And I believe that this is where the stop has been for us as a congregation. The Lord has made promises. I will heal you. I will deliver you. I will set you free. I will encourage you. I will provide for you. But it all starts with reassigning to him the value that he is worth so that we can take our eyes off other things. Every time you reflect on him, Every time you sing, every time you read his love letter to you, you reorient lordship of your life from lesser things to the greater God, from things that distract to the one who speaks life. And listen, worshiping God alone will never distort your life because if you live for achievement and you fail, that God will never forgive you. If you are living for love and romance and family and somehow fail, that God will never forgive you and you will hate yourself. It is only the God that is a shepherd. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. He is the only one who forgives us. He's the only one that redeems us. He's the only one that elevates us and he's the only one that speaks life into us. So why do we need to worship God? Because you are going to worship something. And he is the only object of worship that will not distort you. And the last point is this. How do we worship well? The text tells us several things, but there's three that I'd like to point out to you. Number one, we worship well when we're in community. It's almost so obvious as you look at that that we sometimes miss it, but look what the Scripture says. Everything that the psalmist says is in plural. Did you notice that? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture. There's a community sense that comes out of this. One of the things that has robbed us over this last year during this COVID time is the community that we have so desperately needed and so desperately longed for. And we're getting called back to this. There there are a bunch of households that are watching this right now. And you have fallen in love with watching service online and learning how to isolate yourself and learning how to isolate your family and your children from the community of worship that you desperately need. I spoke to two different people this week who told me that they watch online and that what they do is they fast forward right through the worship, right through everything. They just get to the word, and then when they hear something they don't want to do, they just push stop, and they end it right there so that they are picking and choosing what they want and creating a feast for themselves because they have the ability to do that. The Scripture makes it clear that we are called to worship in a group. Your individual worship time, your individual time with God in the morning or the evening, whenever you may have it, but you need it every day because if this is the only meal you eat all week, you're dying. But that that individual time with God is to prepare you to enter into a corporate time of joy, a corporate time of worship. And unless 
You are in a worshiping community. We will never know God as fully as we would be if we were a part of one. Listen, there are aspects to worship that I absolutely love. Sometimes I get to sit up here and I, and I watch the way you worship. And can I just tell you, different cultures worship different ways. One of the things that I have so enjoyed recently is, is the different colors and cultures that are entering into the church because we are a blended group that brings value to one another. I want you to know that when I've had opportunity to speak in Mexico and South America, Central America, you know, uh, you know, Cuba, India, Haiti, I sat back and watched the energy and the full total nature by which they enter into worship. And, and you're going, oh, that's pretty good. Hey, hey, I, I kind of like that part. There's, there's a life here, you know, and, and they're really good at it. And I'm just going. I'm sorry, Cindy. Here's, here's the theme. The more diverse the worshiping community, the richer the experience. We need both young and old. We need male and female. We need all of the races to get a more accurate inventory of God's excellencies. And can I just say that there are some people in our church that are shouters and other persons that are lookers. Somebody shouts and you're going, what in the world was that? Let me tell you something. If, can, I just, can I just say this? Sometimes if you knew the whole story of what was behind the shout, you would shout too. There are things that are happening in lives and in the kingdom of God that he is breaking chains. And though you may not have had a reason to shout yet, your time will come because worship is not quiet. And so if somebody shouts, shout with them and rejoice with them because God is doing something there. I've mentioned this story that 14 years ago, my mom passed away from pancreatic cancer and my father remarried a wonderful woman by the name of Julie, but I knew my dad's personality and the way that he reacted for 49 years with my mom. It didn't take but like five weeks of being married to Julie and there's a new side to him. I'm going, I never saw that in you. He said, new woman, new rules. <laughs> so what, what I begin to recognize in that, now some of you who are parents of only one gender, I've, I've often said to a, a guy, I believe that a man raising a daughter, there's sides of you that won't come out until you do that. Women raising a son, there's a side of you that won't come out until you've had that opportunity. Do you recognize that our personality in a church is not fully formed without everybody? There are things that we bring out of each other. That's God. That's worship. And let me just say this. Sometimes I get more blessed watching your reaction to God moving sometimes than I do my own self. I can just sit back and I go, oh, I get blessed just watching because of the value that we bring to one another in all of that. Someone says, well, I don't need to go to church to get everything out of my relationship with God. Yeah, you're wrong. 
you're, you're being robbed of the joy of being a part of the whole, and you are robbing others of your response to worship that they would see in you. So not only that, but, but a worshiping community, and this is important for us right now, a worshiping community will begin to heal breaches that divide the human race. Worship will bridge the gap between cultures and genders and races. This is the will of God. So first of all, you need community more than you think you do. Secondly, you need to be able to worship on truth. How does the psalmist know that he serves a great God and a great king, God of all gods, that in his depths the hands hold the depths and the heights of the earth and the seas and the mountains? How does he know that? How does he know that God is a shepherd, that he's our God, that he's the maker and that we're under his care? How does he know all these things? Because the psalmist began to understand that he had submitted himself to what the prophets had told him the truth of God is. The psalmist is submitting to Scripture as the self-revelation of God. And by submitting to it, he's able to take the inventory of God's gloriousness and then basing that on the foundation of the truth of his word, he launches himself into worship with his whole being, knowing that by doing so, he's elevating God in his life and that God will make everything else right when he's in the right position. And so we found our worship on the truth of the Word and who God is. And then lastly, we need the Spirit. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. We're going to have some Pentecost here next Sunday. But the word Spirit doesn't show up in this particular Scripture, but it tells us that the purpose of worship is to come into His presence and to come before Him. Verse 2 says, let us come before Him with thanksgiving and to extol Him with music and song. Verse 6, let us bow down in worship and kneel before the Lord. Now, now this can be confusing to people saying, well, isn't God everywhere all the time? Oh, yeah, He's, he's He's always around. But let me tell you, worship is a key that unlocks a door to His presence that you can get to no other way. How many of you in worship have ever experienced feeling as if the Holy Spirit just embraced you physically and and you don't even know how to describe it? You just know, I am in the presence of God right now. He's got me. I know what's going to happen because He's holding me and, and elevating me and all of that. If it was the same thing, then David would never have said in Psalm 51, do not cast me out of your presence, Lord. He never would have described it in Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and be with me right now. And the answer is that, that in spite of the fact that God is everywhere, there's a difference in the way that he manifests himself in worship and his presence throughout the earth. And the answer is that in spite of all of this, God calls us to worship in community. He calls us to understand the truth and the nature of worship. Worship team, please come and prepare. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will make you aware of His very presence. You will sense His reality. You will sense His presence. It will almost be palpable. You'll feel as if I can reach out and touch Him because in His presence there is majesty. In His presence there is grace. In His presence there is power. In His presence, there is love. In His presence, there is comfort. And He is present in all of these things when His people worship with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So today, I want you to be like a sailor. A sailor can't create the wind, but they certainly know how to capture it when it comes. 
And it's time for you to lift up your sails and say, Father, I need the breath of the Holy Spirit to breathe on me. I don't know what it is that you need in your life today, but I do know that the Lord has been speaking to Grace Assembly for some time about we need to give our hearts to worship. And that as we do that, he will enter in. So worshipers are ready for the wind of the Spirit. Worshipers are prepared for the wind of the Spirit, and worshipers know exactly what to do when the wind of the Spirit begins to blow. Are you ready to worship? Worship.